0: Well, happy Pentecost, everybody. <laughs> I always feel like there must be some special liturgical catchphrases to go with all the feast days of the church, but honestly, I don't think that's the case. Maybe we can make happy Pentecost a thing. Man, it is always thrilling to do a deep dive into these extra-rich ultra-layered passages of Scripture like the text we have this morning in Acts. Every snippet of Scripture has at least a few precious gems in there, but there are some texts that seem like you could just keep mining them for riches over and over forever. And this morning, our text in the second chapter of Acts is, is one of those. There is so much important stuff going on in here. And I think one of the reasons that it is so thick with meaning is that Acts chapter 2, and really the whole book of Acts, is our origin story. It is the origin story of the church. And I know I don't get any creativity points for calling it an origin story. If you have succumbed to any one of the cajillion superhero movies of the past 30 years, you probably know that origin stories describe the backstory of a hero or a villain, and it explains how and why they became the hero or the villain that they are. And I'm certainly not the first to apply this concept to Scripture, but that's because it works really well. Good origin stories reveal deep insights into who people are and why they do what they do. In other words, they speak to us about identity and purpose. The origin story of the church is no different. These questions of identity and purpose are huge. Philosophers devote whole branches of study to ontology and teleology, who we are, and for what purpose we exist. These are some of the most basic questions that we have. And every culture embeds their best guesses at the answers to these questions in stories, in the stories they tell themselves and the stories they tell one another. This story in Acts is God's gift to us. And it doesn't tell us everything about who we are or everything about the purposes to which we are called as the church. We have to look to the whole testimony of Scripture for that, but it absolutely asserts something essential to our identity and our purpose. In fact, one of the most intriguing things to me about our origin story here is how sharply it focuses on one theme in particular, one particular purpose of the many purposes we read about in Scripture For such a rich, textured story, it really does go full-on toward one particular aspect of who we are called to be and what we are called to do as the body of Christ. So if you, like me, regard the book of Acts as both historical and divinely inspired in the telling, this is a story we will want to return to again and again and again. To drink it in, to wrestle with it, to delight in it. We can't do all of that in one sitting, uh, but I really hope that our time together this morning tempts you into going deeper in this origin story in days and years to come. This morning, we're going to tackle our origin story this morning from five different angles or by examining five different components of the Pentecost story. And I've titled these components as an homage to Bill and Mindy Myers, Pentecost announcement a couple weeks ago. Do you remember when they told us to repeat Pentecost, picnic, potluck? I bring five P's of Pentecost. <laughs> they are the people of Pentecost, the person of Pentecost, the power of Pentecost, the purpose of Pentecost, and the proclamation of Pentecost. We're going to start with the people of Pentecost. In chapter 1, or verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, we read that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, who are the they here? If we were to back up to the previous chapter of Acts, we learn that these are a group of men and women who were followers of Jesus and they were heeding Jesus' final instructions to stay in Jerusalem and to wait on the Holy Spirit. This group of disciples includes the 12 disciples, 11 of the original disciples, plus Matthias, who was selected to take the place of Judas. But it was not just the 12. Luke reports that the company of persons was, in all, about 120 which is roughly the number of people gathered here in the sanctuary this morning. Going on to verse two. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So regarding the people of Pentecost, on whom the Holy Spirit fell, we can note that the writer Luke talks about them both in terms of altogether and in terms of each one. Often when we think of the disciples of Jesus, we automatically think of the 12 men in his inner circle. These men represent the 12 tribes of Judah, and indeed they do have a unique sacramental significance that the larger group of gathered disciples did not. These guys were kind of the forerunners of modern-day bishops, icons of the authority and unity of the church. But when the Holy Spirit created the church, and empowered her to be who she was called to be, he poured himself out on every member of the body of Christ. Those flame-like lights rested atop the heads of each one present, regardless of their role in the church, regardless of their gifting or abilities, regardless of status or intelligence or personal interests. Each one who is following Jesus as Lord, received the infilling of the Holy Spirit and was commissioned and equipped to carry out the purposes of God. So there is a powerful each one aspect to the filling at Pentecost. And there is an equally powerful altogether aspect of us as a people. The Holy Spirit absolutely could have visited each one of the 120 disciples individually, independently in 120 different places around Jerusalem. That would have been a different story. Think about what that might have meant for our origin story. Each follower of Jesus could have had a separate and private encounter with the Holy Spirit. But this is not what happened at Pentecost. The supernatural event that occurred at Pentecost was not a personal, subjective, inward experience of the power of the Holy Spirit, though those happen. It was a corporate, objectively observable, and public facing experience of the power of God. The Holy Spirit is invested in each one of us personally. And he is also invested in bringing the, each one of us all together. He makes of us one body and calls us to function together as one, even as he is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The calling and equipping for mission is to all and to each. Each individual together Was and is empowered by the Holy Spirit to know God and to make him known. So we've talked about the people of Pentecost. Now we'll turn our attention to the person of Pentecost, and that is the person of the Holy Spirit. Although we refer to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit as the three persons of the Trinity, I always feel like it's easy to shortchange the spirit in the personhood department, if you know what I mean. (laughs) It can be challenging to remember that he is indeed a person and not like an impersonal force. And that kind of makes sense because he is the person of the Trinity who actually draws most near to us. He tends to be exceedingly gentle with his presence and he's constantly drawing our attention to the other persons of the Trinity, to the Father, to Jesus, recalling the words of Jesus to our mind, inspiring us to give thanks to the Father. But an impersonal force cannot reveal a person to us, and it is the work of the person of the Holy Spirit to make God known to us. In the days of old, God the Father revealed himself to his people through the prophets, by manifesting his presence, say, in a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke, and he revealed himself through his deeds, his mighty works of love and saving power. In the days of Jesus' ministry on earth, Jesus revealed the Father through his loving presence, through his teaching, and through mighty works of power. Jesus revealed the Father through healings and deliverance, forgiveness, and the undoing of sin and death in his loving sacrifice on the cross. But in these last days, the Holy Spirit reveals the Father and the Son to his people by actually coming to dwell in us and to stay in us. In today's gospel reading, Jesus described the unique ability of the Holy Spirit to allow us knowledge of God, person to person. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But he adds, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In us, then through us, the Holy Spirit empowers us to know him and then to make him known. Consider this in our text. After the Holy Spirit fell on the gathered disciples, Peter describes, he kind of interprets this event with the words of the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. In all the ages before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit Pentecost, prophets were something of a rare and unusual breed. The Holy Spirit of God did visit the people of God, but not all and not each. A prophet was an individual with whom God would share his own thoughts, his own heart, his own will in a particular season, for a particular situation, and God would commission that prophet then to make God's mind known to those around them. But about five or 600 years before Jesus was born, before this particular Pentecost, God told his prophet Joel that in the last days, the days of the church, our days, the Holy Spirit would not visit a select few, but would be poured out on all the sons and daughters of God, each one all together. And the Spirit would enable us to know God and would empower us to make him known. So the last three Ps of Pentecost are all intertwined together. You actually can't separate them out. That was kind of gimmicky to, you know, prove a point with the the Myers and just grab their coattails for the memory device there. But the power of the Holy Spirit makes it possible for us to fulfill the purpose for which he made us a people. That purpose is the proclamation of the mighty works of God that all who call upon the name of the Lord might be saved. That's an amazing purpose. Overwhelmingly amazing. Let's look at this strange particular thing that happens somewhere in the middle of verse 4. At the beginning of verse 4, The 120 disciples are in sort of a members only gathering in a private upper room where they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. By the end of verse four, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And scholars agree that somewhere in the middle of this little verse, those disciples moved out from the private upper room and relocated most likely to the outer courts of the temple in Jerusalem. That would be the most logical place for what happened after. Beginning at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Luke goes on to give a list of where all these Jews were from, and it's a list of literally every nation known at that time where the Jews had been dispersed. This close-knit group of Jesus' followers had an unprecedented encounter with the living God, and immediately they left their private gathering, each one all together, and faced outward to begin to make him known. Now, it's easy to get distracted by all the unusual things happening here, all the unusual ways we're seeing and hearing of the presence of God in this passage. There's a mighty rushing wind filling the house. Something that looks like flames of fire is appearing over people's heads. Average folks instantly acquire the supernatural ability to speak in languages they've never learned. This is pretty sensational stuff. It's easy to focus on the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's power and to miss the purpose for which it was given. It's easier to focus on the spectacular form that the utterances take, sudden knowledge of unknown tongues, and miss the content of what they were speaking in those tongues. And actually, the larger multitude of gathered Jews almost missed this too. Our passage says that they were bewildered, amazed, astonished, amazed again, and perplexed because this big multinational group heard these backwoods Galileans speaking in their own native tongues. The multitude that gathered, because they heard this sound, barely mentions the content of what they heard, but they do eventually get around to it and they say, we heard them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The phenomenon was what attracted the crowd no doubt but the purpose for which the power of the spirit came down was this proclamation of the mighty words of God that is the purpose for which the holy spirit began moving in miraculous ways through the brains and tongues and lungs and mouths of the disciple was for this purpose the proclamation of the mighty works Of God. It's easy for us to miss it. It would have been easy for that larger gathering to miss it. But what's truly astonishing to me, actually, is that the 120 disciples of Christ, filled with the Spirit in this spectacular way, they did not miss it. They didn't overlook this. Now, they had a lot going on, they had been through so much. There were intense years of following Jesus. They'd recently been through the trauma of witnessing the brutal death of Christ on a cross and fearing for their own lives. They had the confusion and astonishment and joy of greeting Jesus alive again. Maybe they had an infusion of new courage to face the Romans who had put Jesus to death and to go among the Jewish leaders who put the Romans up to it, but maybe not. Things were still pretty hot for them politically. And right up until the last moment, right before Jesus was lifted up into heaven, before their eyes, the disciples were really unclear still about what Jesus' mission was all about. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they're asking, "'Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?' Their primary focus is still, hey, so now that you're back from the dead, is this where you overthrow our oppressors and put us on top politically again? Is that what's happening now? But Jesus just says, that's not really your business. Here's what I would like you to do now. Sit tight. I'm going to send my spirit to give you power. But it is not a power over people. It is not power over your political enemies. You are going to be my witnesses. You're going to witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And yes, I know you're not particularly fond of the Samaritans, but you're going to witness to them and to everyone else, even unto the end of the earth. And then Jesus kind of drops the mic and goes up into heaven like immediately after that. And that's as far as it goes, as far as vision casting. There's no Q&A, there's no processing time, there's no coaching, that's it. And yet, the 120 disciples do great when the time comes, don't they? This is amazing to me. The crowd around them is understandably really focused on the fact that this little group of men and women from Galilee can suddenly speak an impressive array of foreign languages. But the disciples themselves, when filled with the Holy Spirit, they just start doing the will of the Father, and they start talking about the mighty works of God. That is super encouraging to me. When I read the origin story of the church in Acts and realize how deep And undeniable, the call of Jesus is for me and for us, each one, all together, to proclaim the mighty works of God, I kind of relate to the disciples back in chapter 1. My mind is usually elsewhere. And of course, Jesus calls the church to become many things. He calls us to holiness. He calls us to works of justice. He calls us to uh, compassion for the poor. He calls us to rest. He calls us to worship and to enjoy being in his presence. But brothers and sisters, there is a centrality to the call to proclamation that cannot be denied. And yet, and we know that the same Lord who is so direct and clear about the call to bear witness to do the mighty works of God is the same Lord who tells us that he sets us free for freedom's sake. And he's the same Lord who promised that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And he's the same Lord who spreads a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And he's the same Lord in whose presence is fullness of joy. Some of us at Emmanuel get this. There are men and women and children and teenagers among us who don't sort of have to hold this profound call to witness intention with all the wonderful life-giving things that drew them to Christ in the first place. They already know that the call to witness is not in competition with any of the other purposes God has for us. We proclaim the mighty works of God as we pursue holiness. We bear witness to God's saving power as we do works of justice. We make God known as we invite the poor into our homes. Even as we rest in the Lord and worship him and enjoy him, there is a quality to these deeply restorative aspects of our life with the Lord that dovetails brilliantly and seamlessly with the invitation to marinate in all the mighty works of God. As these people hear this call to bear witness to our amazing, loving, generous Father, that call for some of us gathered here is well integrated into their lives in, in the Lord. I see you guys. And I am so grateful to be part of the body of Christ with you. For some of us at Emmanuel, We might read our origin story this morning and experience the call to witness as potentially a very stressful task, as an unwelcome burden, possibly even a threat to our spiritual health. In case you haven't picked up on the cues, I'm in the second camp. Uh, I love Jesus. I trust Jesus. But I still tend to see the central and essential calling of the church as something more like an add-on to who I am and what I'm called to do. So really for all of us, but kind of especially for those who are like me, I want to share what God is sharing with me on this beautiful Pentecost morning. First thing is fear not. Second is be patient. Faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God. The Holy Spirit has power to work in us as we sit under this word of God. As we close, I'm going to share with our whole gathered body here some of the things that I find deeply reassuring and deeply compelling in our origin story, and then we're going to pray together briefly. The first is the ease with which Jesus informed the disciples of their calling before he ascended into heaven. Jesus knew that these men and women were not on the same page with him regarding these critical issues of identity and calling. There is some serious misalignment there. But he was not worried at all. He has confidence in the power of the Spirit and he has confidence in his followers too the father is in them and they are in the father the father is in us and we are in the father the helper he sends with us to us is with us forever he's going to get us where he wants us to go the second is the assurance that this mission This beautiful and essential mission is the Lord's mission. And the ability to fill it rests in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in us. It's really not about how I feel about my abilities or my confidence levels. I'm able to receive this commission as a gentle invitation to join the Lord in what he is already doing. And we have these testimonies from Scripture to guide us. And then there is the deeply compelling beauty of this mission that we are called to. Whatever baggage we may have around the word witness or whatever frictions or doubts about who God is calling us to be, What this call says about the profound love of God for the world is undeniably beautiful. God gave himself in order to dwell with us, and his passionate desire is to extend the reach of his life-giving love to the ends of the earth. I am on board with that. The church is, in some senses, an exclusive group. There is an inside and an outside. Jesus himself talks about the narrow gate, the few chosen. Of the perhaps 300 million people alive during the particular Pentecost Luke is writing about, Jesus asked his father to send the Holy Spirit just on this one small gathering of about 120 people. And in our gospel passage, Jesus says the world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it neither sees him or knows him. So it becomes very important to know the reason that the Spirit is poured out on those few. We skipped this earlier, but at the very end of our passage, in verse 21, the prophet Joel reveals the whole point of this story. The person of the Holy Spirit empowers the people of God to proclaim the mighty works of God so that. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord might be saved. Everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I do want to play my own tiny, modest part in that proclamation of the mighty works of God so that all may call upon his name and be saved. Let's pray together. If you wouldn't mind closing your eyes and um, maybe laying your hands on your lap um, to receive ministry from the Lord. Lord, we do give you thanks and praise for the mighty saving works you have done for us. Lord, thank you for all that you have done to bring us life. Lord, thank you for those at Emmanuel and in your church around the world who are joyfully and eagerly engaging with you in your life-giving mission. I pray that you would bless them, Father. And now, if you're willing, you can lift your hands up to the Lord. Father, we depend on you, and we invite the power of your Spirit into our lives. Lord, we pray with thanksgiving and great confidence in you that you are sending your Spirit to us with transforming power, with life-giving power, making the Father and the Son known to us. And we do pray, dear Lord, would you bring us forward, a few steps or a whole mile, Lord, bring us further by your Holy Spirit, deeper into the heart of the Father, the loving heart of the Father, whose will it is that none should perish. Lord, we ask to be filled with the love of Christ for those utterly unlike ourselves, for people, Lord, who, who don't speak our language. And Lord, we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to work in us, to break down barriers between peoples, Lord, and to break down barriers within us. Lord, that the whole world might see you and cry out to you and be brought into the loving fellowship of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we pray all of these things in your name, Jesus, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.